at this time uh, in the service where we'd like to look at uh, the scriptures and focus on teaching of Jesus. So if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take one of the blue ones in the back home with you. You're welcome to have. If you forgot to bring a Bible or neglected to, feel free to grab one in the back and just share it for a while. Uh, there's also probably some people, some kind-hearted men and women to, that'll pass them out if you want to raise your hand and just chill. I see one, two already helping. Uh, Of course, course you'll want it, because uh, we're going to be uh, studying a a section in the life and the teaching of Jesus in a book of the Bible that we call the Gospel According to Luke. So please turn to Luke. It's about three-quarters of the way through the Bible, and at the top of the page it says Luke. I'm not, I'm just not, I'm not trying not to sound presumptuous, you know, uh, so, please turn to the gospel according to Luke. Uh, ever since about this time last year, we, as a community, started focusing on the life and the teaching of Jesus as, as it is revealed in the gospel of Luke. We, um, we took a break for the summer just because people are in and out, and we want to really focus on this together. So, that's why we were doing the Hebrews 11 thing. Uh, but since last week, we're back in Luke. So, I'd like to take a second and just give you a few hooks and reminders of the thrust of what's happening in this story. Luke records the miraculous and dramatic birth of the Messiah in the first few chapters of his letter. So say chapters 1 to chapter 3 is kind of that beginning part of the the life of Jesus. At about chapter 4, this changes. There's a baptism that happens. And after Jesus is baptized, there's a voice that comes from heaven. You may may be familiar with this and remember. It says, this is my son whom I love and whom I'm well pleased. Three Hebrew phrases that harken back to key stories in the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, but also three phrases that are true of Jesus. At that moment, Jesus then, his story starts to shift and change where he begins to do something that we call ministry. So he starts to uh, go around and preach and teach about the kingdom of God which really is him showing people how to submit their lives to uh, the king of the universe, how to live a life that's uh, supposed to be in the authority uh, under God. So this is the kingdom, the kingdom rule inside of your life. So Jesus goes around teaching this and preaching this. At about chapter 8 or chapter 9, you'll start to see this event that happens where Jesus goes up on this hill with a few of his disciples and a bunch of crazy stuff starts happening. Um, But one of the things that happens is a voice again uh, is, is heard. It says similar things to the voice before, except for one difference. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. At that moment, another shift happens in the story of Jesus where he then purposes himself to go to Jerusalem. It says he set his face towards Jerusalem. And what that means is he then is knowing, I am now on the way to die for the sins of the world. I'm now on the way to be crucified in Jerusalem. He he says it repeatedly. People don't really get what he's talking about, but we know that's where he's moving. Now, as you look at the actual outline of this letter, then you, uh, you see chapter 9 is the beginning of that movement. And it goes all the way to chapter 19. Halfway through 19, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. So Luke puts a very big uh, section of his letter in this journey to Jerusalem. This journey that began with the voice from heaven saying, listen to him. 
Now, wouldn't it be interesting uh, if you were to put yourself in this situation where you knew that you were going to die very soon? Wouldn't all of the things that you were about to say, all of the things that you were about to do, be very specific, very calculated, and very important? You'd be seeing things that matter to people that mattered and saying it in a way that you meant it and not messing around. Well, how much more so then would Jesus, knowing that he's going to die soon, take very seriously the next words and actions that he does on this journey to Jerusalem? This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. People do listen to him. As you can see in chapter 19 uh, and verse 28, there are people trying to kill him, but they can't. And I quote, for everyone was hanging on his every word. So with that sense of reality and anticipation, let us also this morning listen to him. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 14 and verse 15. I must have forgot to say that. You're a lot of paper. I'll read it out loud. Verse 15, when one of those that were at the table with Jesus heard this, they said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet, invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. First one said, I just bought a field. And I must go and see it. Please send my regrets. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please send my regrets. Still another said, I just got married so I can't come. Servant came back and reported this to, this, to his master. When the owner of the house became uh, angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly then into the streets and the alleys and the town and bring the poor. Bring the crippled. Bring, bring the blind and the lame. Some time passed. It's verse 22. The sir, sir, the servant said, what you've ordered has been done. And there's still room. The master told his servant, go out into the country lanes and compel them. Compel them to come in so that my house will be filled. And I tell you, none of those who were invited are going to taste my banquet. These are the very words of God. Please have a seat or feel free to have a seat. Jesus is at a banquet. Notice in verse 15, after he had heard these things, he said to Jesus. Okay, so there were some things already discussed, which Rod kind of opened up last week in a very compelling sermon on um, a, a few different things. One of them was, Jesus opens uh, up this, this dinner that he's having with some very awkward statements. Um, Jesus is at a Sabbath dinner, okay? We call it Shabbat dinner, and it's very special. It's once a week. Uh, there are even sometimes different dinners I I during the Sabbath, but it, it's special. It's not awkward or wrong or uh, awkward. Um, it's not um, irregular for a rabbi to be invited to one of these banquets uh, because as he's traveling, it would be a poor use of... Uh, his, if he were to use his skill in the town and his disciples were to make money for their own meal, they'd be taken away from the regular economy of the village. Okay, so it would be appropriate then for them to receive hospitality for payment uh, during their discussions 
for his teachings. Okay, it's a great platform for any rabbi to be able to have a discussion, uh, impromptu conversation and questions about his theology and things that he was teaching. What Jesus does is kind of odd because he sits down at the table with these people. Um, he heals somebody that's really puffed up, it says, or swollen. I don't really know what that is, but pictures come to mind kind of like, um, who was that girl on Willy Wonka? That uh, Violet, Violet, uh, maybe she was definitely uh, dealing with some swollen body uh, there. I don't know if that's what was going on with Jesus at this banquet. But he heals the man, and then uh, he begins to kind of critique some of the personas that are around him. He's, he starts to say things like, look, I see you guys are, are trying to get the best seat at the table. So why are you doing that? You should be serving. You should be trying to be humble, which is kind of a radical statement at the time of Jesus. is not really a virtue yet to be humble. Uh, Jesus is kind of the greatest example of that, and so he's trying to, to show people that this is a real big value here, to not be making yourself be, uh, sit in better positions than everybody else. He then goes on to show us a little bit about what the uh, Jewish understanding of righteousness is by saying, why are you guys throwing a banquet for all kinds of people that could pay you back? Why are you inviting people that, uh, that are just likely to re-invite you to another party? That seems like a transaction that you're trying to be made. Why don't you invite people who are poor? Because then they'll never be able to pay you back. This is uh, righteousness, giving, without expecting something to be re- uh, returned to you. You can see that He makes this connection in verse 14 also. You'll be blessed. Although they can't repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the the righteous. This is a theme that Jesus is starting to play on. Now, apparently, as he is saying these things, this makes someone think of something else. Okay, verse 15 is where we are. After he had said these things, a man calls out, Blessed is the one who will eat the feast of the kingdom of God. What I want to do this morning is kind of, in the light of all of this, ask the question, what does that statement mean? And why, why did Jesus respond to it in the way that he did? Okay. Now, what does this statement mean? Have you ever uh, felt like you're missing something? I feel like I'm missing something a lot in life. I was thinking about that this morning. When I was in 10th grade, my teacher said, okay, this is, your last, uh, this is your last assignment before I'll be gone for the next month or so. And I just raised my hand. I was like, Miss Cuddy, where are you going? And she looks at me and she goes, I'm having a baby. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I must have been missing something here. I could, I mean, it was uh, very embarrassing for me. Um, <laughs> I must be missing something you know, oftentimes I'll be reading the Bible and I'll be kind of skimming through some stuff because I definitely feel like I'm missing something sometimes. I mean, what is this guy talking about? How is he just bringing this statement up right now? Is this an appropriate statement to even make at a dinner party? Blessed is the one who will eat bread in the kingdom of heaven. What he is referring to is something that we call the messianic banquet. And it is a major motif in the end times, uh, so, so we say eschatology, in the uh, age to come. That there will be a banquet that accompanies the Messiah. 
But still, it's kind of hard to understand because it's not like we ever bring up that stuff at dinner anyways. You know, it's not like I'm at Applebee's with everybody and I'm like, you know what this place reminds me of? The Mark of the Beast. You know, like, uh, <laughs> it's, that's not really appropriate dinner talk. You know, hey, nice t-shirt. Don't take this the wrong way, but you, you remind me of the great harlot, you know. Um, it's just kind of out of place in this context. So let's try and get our minds here. A few times, Jesus makes this switch to start talking about this future banquet. Remember last May when I shared on chapter 13, uh, verses uh, 26, 28, when he, he's talking about that narrow door, strive to enter in through the narrow door, he says, because there's going to be. And then he says, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the prophets, and people from all over the world are going to be eating together. And there's going to be a lot of people frustrated that they're not able to eat there. That's one of those times when I'm thinking, I must be missing something here. Why, what is this meal with people who have died and must be resurrected? And what is this future meal? Am I allowed to be there? Who's all going to be there? What is this? Jesus is talking about something that is peripheral for us, but is central to the life of someone in his day. And I wonder why talking about heaven or talking about the end or the age to come is so peripheral for us. And when I think about my own life, I think it's because a lot of that discussion revolves around fear. There's a lot of literature and movies uh, when I was growing up and being formed that uh, were related to some major terror and drama type things. Maybe you've seen some of these movies before where people just vanish and then everything else is, is just chaos the rest of the movie. Now, of course, I'd like to see a movie where uh, the people who vanish just go wherever they're going, and you go with the movie there, and it's just sort of calm, and everybody, wherever they are, just hang out, you know? But that doesn't make good drama. So, of course, we have to watch the movie from the perspective of the person that got left behind, right? So then I start to emotionally attach myself to the situation, because that's what you do when you watch a movie. Well, at least when you watch it with me. I sometimes stand in the movie theater and shout things because I want to get into the story. Um, then I start to, 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 to dream and think for myself of what I would be if I was Nick Cage or what I would be if I was, you know, Kirk Cameron or these characters. And then I start to be afraid of this traumatic thing happening to me. And it becomes a major fear, right? So I'm not going to welcome that necessarily. It's not something that I'm just uh, going to be constantly thinking about. I, I more want to shut that out and think more of like good memories and good thoughts and things about the Bible. Like this regular feast. Like I get Jesus is talking about regular banquet. That's fun. But don't talk to me about this future banquet because I'm kind of scared of that age. The time of Jesus, it wasn't always like this. There was actually a great feeling of hope and anticipation for this future banquet. And I'd like to get to that place again. I'd like to get to a place where we in some way have built in our eschatology the reality that there with the presence of Jesus will be a great banquet. I mean, in the Old Testament, you do read the phrase, it is a great and terrible day of the Lord. It's not terrible for everyone. It will be great for some. And I want to preach that. Some of the verses that this comes from then, uh, like Rod let, read last week. Turn your eyes to Isaiah chapter 25, if you want. Isaiah 
Isaiah 25 and verse 6 are some of the, uh, this is where this Bessianic banquet idea comes from. Verses like this, where the Lord says, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a banquet of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine. I read in the Talmud that the uh, sages of old believe that this wine is fermented from grapes from the Garden of Eden. That would be the best wine. Uh, the best meats and the finest wines, it says. Verse 7. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people and the sheet that covers, get this, all nations. That's the Hebrew word that we get the word Gentile from. Okay, so the uh, Gentiles. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away uh, the tears from their faces and will remove the shame from his people from all of the earth. And what if that was what we thought about when we thought about the coming of the Messiah? What if that was what we talked about when we told people the Lord's coming back and with him will be this magnificent feast? At least his presence will accompany all of the feelings that accompany this feast. We're capable of feeling that feeling, that sense of anticipation. I know we are. Have you ever started off a lion season with this feeling? Maybe this year it's going to happen. You know, have you ever had a conversation with somebody that sounded like, uh, like this? Is it a boy or a girl? That sense of anticipation and excitement. Have you ever thought of maybe this, you know, young woman is getting ready for a date and she says to her sister, I don't know, but I think tonight might be the night that he proposes. I don't know if it's going to happen, but I hope it does. I'm going to be ready for it. How do I look? Practice my shock and awe face. <laughs> We're capable of feeling this feeling of this hope and the, uh, the anticipation of something beautiful and great coming. Imagine if we had that built in our end times thinking, this anticipation. Imagine if then that's why almost all of the letters of the New Testament in some way are beckoning the return of the Lord. It's going to come, and it's going to be better. It will be better for all of us if he came. I believe that to the bottom of my heart. Now, this is a central conversation for Jesus, this banquet, uh, for the time of Jesus. Yet, at the time of Jesus, this Isaiah uh, vision has been about 700 years old. So it's a 700-year-old conversation, something that not a lot of us participate in. But uh, at that time, then, it becomes... Themes develop and different ideas uh, are uh, coming for a lot of different things. One of which is who's going to be there. So uh, here is, uh, let me share with you some other sources um, of literature that kind of talk about who they thought were going to be there. Who they assumed was going to be at the Messianic Banquet. Um, Kind of like we have the message version or the living Bible or versions of our Bible that expound and take liberties in certain places to kind of uh, show us nuances and, and themes. That also was going on in the time of Jesus. There are Aramaic written uh, texts that we call Targumim, the Targums, that um, uh, expound on certain Hebrew uh, texts. So, so after exile, one of the common languages that was spoken was a sister language to Hebrew, Aramaic. And so they still preserved Hebrew at church. They'll read the Bible in original language, but then they may preach or they may teach or share in Aramaic. So 
uh, you can read some of these texts and get a good understanding of what people were thinking about in Jesus' time uh, about verses in the Old Testament, right? So the Isaiah 25 verse, that I, chapter 25, 6 that I read to you, in the Targum sounds like this, and I quote, uh, On that day the Lord will prepare a banquet for all nations. Okay, so far so good. That's exactly uh, what the, the Hebrew text was saying, right? Next sentence. And they will suppose that it will be an honor for them, but it will be a shame because they will then experience plagues. Plagues will come upon them that will cause them great harm. Plagues will come upon them that will bring them to their death. Now, it seems like it turned, took a negative turn there after that second sentence. And I was a little bit different than the, the, the English translation that we got from the Hebrew version in Isaiah 25 about uh, God wiping away tears from everyone's eyes and all that. Another source that developed about 200 years before Jesus is uh, a document called the Book of Enoch. In this, there's also a major emphasis on this messianic banquet to come. And uh, what he writes is that there will be Gentiles invited to this banquet. Okay, so far so good. Also, there will be someone called the angel of death that will be invited to this banquet. And he will take his sword and slay all of the Gentiles before everybody starts eating. And if you want to get to the banquet table, you have to walk through all of that to get there. It's kind of graphic, but I'm starting to see a theme develop that there will be Gentiles invited to this banquet, but it will be uh, the end of them. Let me take you to the eastern side of the Judean wilderness to a, a group of people at Kirbet Qumran called the Qumran Community. This is where we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's right on the western bank of the Dead Sea. They also, that's where we found the great Isaiah scroll, where you're able to read about the Messianic banquet in Hebrew for yourself. And um, they also talk in much of their literature about this Messianic banquet. They talk about it so much that they actually have it planned how they're going to eat at the banquet. They have the whole liturgy planned out, how they're going to uh, pass bread and wine and do all of this stuff. Uh, they're into it. One of the things that I want to share with you is in one of their scrolls, it says, All who are invited to this banquet must not have, or must not be smitten in any way in their flesh, must not have a crippled hand or a crippled foot, must not be blind or lame or deaf or dumb or have any visible blemish, or else they're not invited to the banquet. The Qumran community is known for being a little more strict than others, and so they're even not even going there with the Gentiles. Of course, that's out of the question. It's even Jewish people who have any type of physical blemish are not going to be at the banquet. Now, this all might seem a little boring to you. I'm just trying to show you that there are some perspectives on this Messianic banquet that we can swim in as we uh, think through this conversation Jesus is having. And we might think it's a little odd that people would exclude someone from heaven. It's very easy for us to look around and see people that are different than us and say, no way. Different theology? Nope. Different preferences? Different lifestyles? It's very easy for us to get to the same place. It's something to really consider. Who is invited to the banquet, Crossroads? With that in mind, then, what does, what does Jesus' response 
imply. See, Jesus responds to this person's statement. And even that in and of itself is telling because Jesus could have just agreed with them. I mean, it's a true statement, right? It's not like he's saying any question or anything like that. He just says, blessed is the man who eats bread of the kingdom of heaven. That's true, actually. Jesus could have just said, high five, let's eat. I know, that's going to be awesome. But instead, he chooses to respond. So think, perhaps, that there's something that he perceives in this statement that he needs to correct. There's something that this person sounded like or said that is complicating and that Jesus needs to speak into it. I wonder if that's why the beginning of this parable, or even if that's why this parable is about a banquet anyways. It's his response to this statement about this messianic banquet. And this first kind of statement seems to imply that there's some sort of assumption in the room that there will be people who are able to just uh, be at the banquet who don't want to be at the banquet or who don't live like they want to be at the banquet. That there will be people who assume that no matter what, they're going to be there. Because the first part of Jesus' parable here is clearly saying, no, you can actually excuse yourself from the banquet. Notice what he says. The first person that uh, Jesus brings up in his illustration. A man was um, making an excuse about not coming to the banquet because he just bought a field. Okay? A field is good. That's not a bad thing, especially in the Middle East. This is something that you would uh, want to have. It's a very important uh, commodity. You get food. You get maybe uh, a vineyard. You get wine. You get money. Consider maybe even uh, amplifying that a little bit. What's behind having this land? Who has the most land in any you know, ancient region? Who owns the most land? The king. I wonder if there's something inside of uh, desiring this land that's sort of a power, like a power thing going on here. Uh, the king has the most power. The king has the most authority and the most land. He, he's, he's got the space. Okay. What about the second person? He's got five teams of oxen. Okay, so he's got ten oxen that he's using. Not only does he have land, but he also has something that not a lot of people will be able to afford. There's a very, very wealthy person that's deciding, you know what, I would rather not go to the banquet. This, um, this sign of wealth is something that I really need to focus on. The last person who denies the banquet says, I just got a wife. Actually, I just got this woman in my life. She's great. She brings me all the companionship and pleasure that I need. No, thank you. I don't have to go to the banquet. Please uh, send my regrets. It's interesting that these are three things that keep coming up over and over in culture as three things that we all struggle with or three things that we all strive after. Now, I'm sure, were I to say to any of you, um, here's the key to the city of Grand Rapids. You're welcome to do whatever you want with the city. You're in charge. You have the total power and authority over all this land here. All that you have to do is really just say, I have, nothing, I have no relationship with God whatsoever. I don't want to be a Christian or anything like that. Now, if you're a Christian, most of you would probably say, ah, uh, that's not worth it. Um, I'm not going to deny Jesus for a bunch of land or a bunch of power. But I wonder, on a day-to-day -day basis, do you deny Jesus to get more power? 
or to, to use more power? How much time do we spend actually uh, seeking to be the boss? Or how much would we really enjoy being the one that calls the shots or being the person who's in authority over somebody else? Now, if that's too tricky to quantify, just ask yourself this question. In the major decisions of my life, when I know that Jesus wants me to do something, but I feel like I want to do something else, who wins the argument? If it's you, you're dangerously coming close to the person who said, "Uh, no thank you to the banquet, and you're excusing yourself from the banquet. Take heed to this parable. It's possible to excuse yourself from the great messianic banquet. What if you are somebody that's seeking after wealth and you're valuing wealth more than you value relationship with God, you know? What if, what if I was to come up to you and say, hey, I got a blank check or we don't really use checks anymore. If I have a uh, credit card that is prepaid and you can use it the rest of your life and have whatever you want, doesn't matter. All you have to do is really once in a while just tell people, you, you know, you don't like Jesus or uh, actually don't even worry about it. Just don't bring them up ever. You can have the credit card. No, most of us would say, I don't want it. I want to be able to, to, to love Jesus publicly and serve him uh, all that I want. Well, now consider, on a daily basis, if I was to remove that once-in-a-lifetime situation, w- would it be similar to m- many of our lives in general? I buy whatever I want. I do whatever I want in re- within reason. I, I follow my own desire, and I pretty much just don't talk about Jesus. I mean... Unless it has to happen. Now, if that's not fair of an argument, just ask yourself the question. When it comes to how you use your money, and it comes to uh, your, your purpose and decisions uh, of, of purchases, and you know that Jesus wants you to do a certain thing, or uh, buy a certain thing, or give a certain thing, and you decide you want to do something else, who wins the argument? This type of decision is coming dangerously close to the type of person who would excuse themselves from the banquet. For years and years, people have been using uh, sexuality and been using marriage as a great way to forget completely about the relationship with the Lord. And oftentimes, it almost seems justifiable. You know, people will say, I feel a certain way and I want to do a certain thing and that's my top priority right now. I'm not really needing this Jesus thing or this God thing. That is not really something that's relevant to my life. What I need right now is a happier relationship or a satisfying relationship or a companion or somebody to walk through life with me. That would be great. Now I wonder, if it came down to you living your life out in romance, or in sexuality, in a certain way that you wanted to do, or in a way that Jesus wants you to live, who would win that argument? If it's you, you're dangerously coming close to being a type of person that would say no thank you to the banquet, and excusing yourself. Well, gambling was something I think very, very important, the presence of the Messiah. Consider Consider this half of the parable. Now, Jesus could just left it there, but apparently there was something else lingering in the air. And now, given that information that I gave you before about those uh, three different perspectives of who's going to be there and who's not going to be there, I think it's conceivable that Jesus was speaking into something that was also in the room. What if this person was bringing up this phrase because he's trying to rationalize helping the poor? 
or trying to somehow help uh, how difficult that is, right? Okay, so it, it, think about it. Jesus just said, hey, bring the poor into your house and, and, and give to people that can't give back to you, right? Then this person makes this statement about the Messianic banquet in the context of people who believe those people aren't going to be at the banquet. Is that too confusing? Uh, in other words, he's basically maybe just saying to everyone, okay, we could do this, guys. Cowboy up. We're only going to be with these people for a little while. Uh, we all know who's really going to be at the banquet, right? Blessed is he who is eating at the banquet, right, Rabbi? Spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. Is no way to look at helping people who are poor. Is no way to look at your fellow man. Be careful. If you start to look at someone who is, is needy or someone that you're called to help as somebody that you're uh, hoping that you quickly get away from. I know that sometimes in my life this happens. I, I, I will help someone or give someone a ride or something. I just can't wait till this is over. Uh, what that does then is it psychologically you start to really, really think that uh, my life is much better when I am in my comfort in my own place without this person which then you will start to imagine a heaven or you'll start to imagine an ultimate place of satisfaction where none of these people exist except for you, people that look like you, talk like you, make funny jokes like you, and no person, no diversity whatsoever. It's dangerous. I'm not saying that it's a sin or it's wrong to feel uncomfortable around some people, okay? I know this. I make people feel uncomfortable all the time. What I am saying is if you despise inwardly, if you despise somebody that you're called to help, you will then, that will then start to eliminate any compassion or any long-lasting desire to help bring them into the banquet. What's going to happen is, is you will then start to say, like the servant in the parable who said, you know what, I tried. I went out there, I gave it a, I gave it a shot, and some people came, but some people didn't. Who cares? Let's eat. I'm over it. I become jaded. These people don't really matter. I know that I'm going to be there, so it's okay. Jesus sends the servant back and says, compel them to come. Don't, that's not good enough. I want you to go back. I want you to serve from a genuine place that loves this person enough to say, no, I'm going to over and over welcome you to come to this banquet. I want to compel you. Going to heaven or having our place at a messianic banquet isn't the spoonful of sugar that helps us to tolerate people who are different than us now. The aroma of Christ inside of us is the spoonful of sugar that helps people who are desperate and needy and broken tolerate taking one more step forward in their pain. The aroma of Christ that is coming from the, this church is the spoonful of sugar that helps people start to see that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. You're the salt to the earth. Don't lose your saltiness because you've despised the people that you're supposed to bring flavor to. You're the light of the world. Don't hide that light under something because you don't, you're beginning to not love people anymore. Let the light shine. There are people who live in darkness. There are people who are lost out in, the, in this world. Let your light shine so that they can see somehow in you see and make a connection that there's somebody in heaven that loves him. Compel them to come. So I'm going to have the band come back and 
I don't have a response. That's just the end of the parable. So I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what to do with it. I mean, they, they uh, maybe were very convicted by this saying. You know, they uh, maybe changed their lives. Um, I like that it's not there because it's really on us. So think about this. When you think of uh, the, the calming days, when you think of the uh, return of the Lord, are you scared? I want you to know that in your book, there is a marriage supper of the Lamb in chapter 19 of Revelation. I want you to know that there are pictures that God wants his people to have of, of something that is beautiful. I want you to consider all that is good about feast that we know in our culture. And, and, and see that God wants to attach himself to those good things and say, that's what my presence will bring. When we sit down on Thanksgiving and we place the turkey on the table and all the smells are there, that good feeling will be present at the return of the Messiah. When our family is all together on Christmas morning and uh, that feeling of giving gifts to people that didn't pay for them or maybe didn't deserve it or can pay you back, that feeling of charity, that feeling that we don't have to go anywhere because we're all here right now and there's nothing else in the world that matters uh, but us right now in this family will accompany that Messiah when he returns. These are the feelings of feasts that we know and how much more so would they be present with God who created all these good things. Maybe just a piece of your eschatology, maybe just a little piece of your end time thinking can be one of that of a banquet. If you start to do this, then you will believe that it will be better when the Messiah returns. And you will start to live a life and do things in response to uh, beckoning. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Like the writers of our Bible. So say, this morning, we have kind of our own messianic banquet set up. Jesus, in the context of a feast, broke bread and passed around wine. And he said, in the feast, inside of this feast, I want you to know some deep things about who I will be for you. He broke this bread and he said, this is my body that's been broken for you. And he passed around this cup and said, this is my blood that was shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Eat it and drink it. Take it in. And as your body naturally takes in food and lives a little while longer, if you take in Jesus, you'll live forever. Welcome to the Messianic Banquet table that we have now. And so for those of you who are struggling with, say, uh, the pursuit of power, or are putting, getting material possessions and acquiring all these things um, above your relationship with Jesus, all I want to say to you is come to the banquet. Repent of placing power over your relationship with God and, and, and come to the banquet. Don't you know that anybody who's invited to a banquet doesn't have the authority of what goes on at the banquet? Anyone that comes to a banquet and enjoys it just has to check all the ability to make decisions and all the ability to call the shots at the door and just enjoy your time at the banquet. So, repent of needing power and come to the banquet. For those of us who are obsessed with getting wealth and getting more money and everything that comes with it, I just want to invite you also to come to the banquet. Don't excuse yourself from this banquet. I want to invite you to come and actually believe that the person who invites you to the banquet will provide for everything that you need. That's part of 
coming to someone else's banquet. It's this day of already giving, uh, paid. They've already paid for everything that you'll ever have to need or, or need for the banquet. Do you know that Jesus pays? We have no need to elevate gaining possessions and money over Jesus. He pays. So come to the banquet. For those of you that are obsessed with pleasure or are constantly seeking after uh, companionship and elevating that over your relationship with God, you can excuse yourself from the banquet in this regard. But I want to encourage you to come and to repent from that and to leave it behind. Because don't you know that by coming to a banquet, it's on the host to make sure that you're completely happy at the, at the, for the entire time. It's on the host and the person that invites you to the banquet to, to, to be hospitable to you and say, I, I desire you to be satisfied. What can I do to make you happy? those of us then who may have a propensity to despise the people that are around us who are needy and broken, if any of you, or maybe if all of us, were to reject all of those things, power, wealth, pleasure, look who we're left with. A bunch of people who are poor, who are needy. A bunch of people that Jesus says will be filling this banquet to come. So I agree with the statement. Blessed is the man who eats and drinks at the feast of the kingdom of God.